In this episode of Trek in Time, we're going to be talking about authenticity. That's right, we're talking about Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 8, If Memory Serves. Welcome everybody to Trek in Time, where we're taking a look at Star Trek in chronological order, and we're also taking a look at the context at the time of original broadcast. So we're talking about Discovery Season 2, which means we're also talking about early 2019, which feels like it shouldn't be that long ago, and yet ages could be decades for all I know. And who are we? Well, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a published author. I've written some sci-fi. I've written some stuff for kids, including my most recently released The Sinister Secrets of Singe. And with me is my brother, Matt. He's that Matt behind Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. So between the two of us, we've got the fiction, we got the tech. Sounds like Star Trek to me. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I've lost complete track of time. Speaking of time, I looked out the window over the weekend. It's like the leaves are changing on the trees. It's like, wait, <laughs> where, what's happened to those where trees? Is, where, where is time going? <laughs> I can't believe the year's almost over. Uh, believe me, uh, turning the page and entering October the way we have, um, considering it was like 95 degrees right up until September 30th. And then yeah. suddenly it's like, oh yeah, you got to put on a jacket and a hat. What are you, an idiot? I'm like, how, what? I, huh? <laughs> Before we get into our conversation on this most recent episode, we always like to take a look at previous episodes, comments. So Matt, what did you find in the mailbag? So from episode 115, Light and Shadows, Pilgo69 wrote, the thing that bugged me about the timey-wimey bits was the doubling dialogue, the doubling dialogue. How is Spock able to mind meld and see planets being destroyed, but not know who or what the thing was that was destroying them? If the Red Angel knows, he should know too, right? And to me, that felt like a little bit of a mic drop comment. I was like, that's a really good point that he raises. Mind meld, he would know what, I don't want to spoil it for people who don't know, but he, we find out who and what the Red Angel is. And it's like, you would think Spock would actually know who that is. So why doesn't he seem to know? I would, is and, and this is happening. just me putting on my writer's hat to come up with an explanation to allow the plot to exist the way it does. Would say, without them saying <laughs> in as, as many words, uh, something about time travel, something about the shielding of the suit and the tech, something creating enough of a gap in the mind meld that the only thing that Spock can get is maybe something that the mm -hmm. recipient of the mind meld is actively trying to get them to understand. So when the red angel is present in front of Spock and the mind meld is on its way, that individual knowing I have, I can send no message, but images thinking about the ultimate destruction of all these planets. So like getting well, that across would be yeah, the, the I, I only that. thing I, I, I say yeah. all of that while also saying I had exactly the same response that pale ghost did like, wait a minute. Why wouldn't he pull away and say yeah. like, Oh, it was Jerry. Like <laughs> all this time. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think what the show is, I think that what the show is trying to do is because of how broken Spock is, because that mind meld and that connection yeah. has destroyed him, basically. I think that's their shorthand for that's why he it's like his mind yeah. is a mess. So that's why he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Um, the other comment was from the previous one before that 114, The Sound of Thunder uh, from Scooteroo 1701. Uh, he wrote, it's always nice to see aliens like the Ba'ul that are not your traditional human with forehead or face bumps in Trek. The subversion of them not actually being predators of the Kelpians, but rather the prey, and they use their technology to stop the Kelpians. I also like that they talked about them in the future episodes and didn't just let them fall by the wayside and ignore them. Culber's side story about trying to come to terms with his post-resurrection life is great deep Star Trek style story that could be a complete episode in itself, in my opinion. I also want to state that your disagreement on the episode felt exactly like I was talking to my brother and is one of the reasons I love this channel. <laughs> so, Thank you, Scooter. <laughs> Thank you, Scooteroo. Uh, but I thought that was a good comment. Um, and I agree on the Culber note. It feels, I don't think they're shortchanging it, but it feels like they could have done it in just an entire dedicated episode 
to Culber's quandary. We're going to be touching upon that in today's discussion as well. Where they, yeah. yeah. But, th- but they've been splitting it up across multiple episodes. Um, but I, I do really enjoy that storyline. It's a really yeah. co- compelling yeah. Star Trek. A lot of my notes story. on this are focused entirely on that. And that's why I started off the episode saying we're going to be talking about authenticity. Like the idea of identity, the idea of are we what we remember or are we our bodies? It's that is yeah. the thing he's wrestling with. And it is very, very Trek. It is effectively the debate around whether data is a life form. It is the debate around it. Yep. And I think it's an interesting tie in for this episode. And I'll get into this later. Uh, episode three or uh, film three, the search for Spock. That is a new body that the original mindset of Spock is put back into. And it then is wrestled with in comedic ways in the fourth movie where Kirk and Spock are reestablishing, like, are we even friends anymore? What does this mean? So this is very, very track. The Culber storyline is very track. And I agree. uh, Very interesting that they decided to break it up over multiple episodes as a B plot, as opposed to having a single episode focus entirely on it. But before we get into all of that, that noise in the background, you're hearing that's the read alert, which can mean only one thing. It's time for Matt to tackle the Wikipedia description. And this is an interesting one, Matt, because you got to tackle two descriptions. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay, previously the Enterprise visited the planet Talos 4 where Pike and Spock met the Talosians, beings that can create incredible illusions. Pike fell in love with Vina and an injured Federation crewman in the Talosians' care, but she was unable to leave the planet due to the Talosians' abilities keeping her alive. Pike chose to return to the Enterprise, and Starfleet banned future visits to Talos 4. In the present, Burnham and Spock secretly travel to Talos 4, where the Talosians heal Spock's mind in exchange for Burnham's memories of emotionally scarring Spock, which they are interested in observing. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of sketchy. But anyway, Spock reveals that he mind-melded with the Red Angel, a time traveler trying to avert a galactic catastrophe in the future. Stamets attempts to reconnect with Culber, who is going through an identity crisis since his resurrection. Culber confronts Tyler, but realizes that the later is going through a similar crisis. You're Discovery almost there. Collects Sp- <laughs> The way this is written is funny to me. Dis- discovery collects Spock because the word right. discovery doesn't yeah. come across as a name to me. So it's like discovery collects. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? Discovery collects Spock and Burnham and they escape while Section 31 is distracted by illusions created by the Talosians. That's right. So, yes, that is two this descriptions. Is episode number one. eight, directed by TJ Scott, who is, of course, our favorite stuntman turned director. Story by Dan Dworking and Jay Beatty. This episode originally aired on March 7th, 2019. And the main cast, as always, is Sonequa Martin-Green as Michael Burnham, Doug Jones as Saru, Anthony Rapp as Paul Stamets, Mary Weissman as Sylvia Tilly. And guest actors include Wilson Cruz as Hugh Culber, Anson Mount as Christopher Pike, Shazad Latif as Tyler, Michelle Yeoh as Jarjo, Melissa George as Vina, Ethan Peck is making his first full episode appearance as Spock, and Alan Van Sprang as Leland. What was the world like at this time on March 7th, 2019? Well, Matt, you were still singing full-throated to Seven Rings by Ariana Grande. I know you're wondering, was there any other song in 2019? Apparently not. And at the box office, people lined up again to see How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, <laughs> which added $30 million to its $55 million from its first week. And on television... We've been paying attention to the top streaming programs of 2019, trying to compare apples to apples here with Discovery being a streaming program. We've already looked at Lucifer, Stranger Things, 13 Reasons Why, Money Heist, Orange is the New Black, The Handmaid's Tale, and Sex Education. And number eight on the list is a show called Elite or Elite in Spanish. It's a Spanish teen drama created for Netflix. And the series is set in a fictional elite high school and revolves around the relationships between three working class students enrolled at the school through a scholarship program and their wealthy classmates. And in the news, well, we have the ongoing 
slow motion catastrophe of the Venezuelan presidential crisis. This is a crisis that would continue until this year. It is about an election in which both sides were contesting the election and depending on their ideological leanings, different countries recognized different candidates. So both presidents continued to claim ownership of the win and it would create strife for all of these years and create a humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. And the trials of Paul Manafort were coming to a close as former Trump campaign manager, Paul Manafort was sentenced to 47 months in federal, federal prison for eight counts, including tax fraud and bank fraud. I highlight these stories because they are part of an ongoing 2019 and moving forward argument in the news that people are distrustful of what their governments are telling them. There is a question about leadership being legitimate and an overarching narrative of this series discovery in season two, to me feels like it is doing something similar. It is reflective of this attitude of leadership is not always to be trusted. We saw that in the first season with the war against the Klingons, including actions by an admiral that are not above board. And now here in season two, we are seeing more of section 31 pulling the strings, making the argument that these strings need to be pulled to keep the Federation safe. And yet they seem to go counter to some of the very basic rules around what it means to be protective of your citizens. There is a certain amount of, well, you can sacrifice a few eggs in order to make an omelet or the good of the many outweighs the good of the few. And in this case, that statement once again leads right back to Spock. We have a Section 31 agenda, which means we got to get a hold of Spock and we got to rip his memories out of his head. And if that kills him, so be it. There's a bigger picture at work. While Spock's friends and colleagues aboard the Discovery, including Captain Pike, are more focused on proving him innocent of the argument that he's murdered individuals in his escape from a mental hospital and that saving Spock and understanding what is happening big picture can both be achieved. So I think that we are seeing a real subtle reflection of the era in that Star Trek is making arguments at this point. Discovery is making arguments yeah. that the Starfleet and Federation that in the original series are the paragon of trustworthiness are not always to be trusted. So looking at the Spock storyline, uh, right off the bat, let me just say this. I absolutely love the very beginning of this episode with previously on Star Trek and yes. the recap for people who haven't seen that. I making this effectively the second half of a two-parter. I thought that that was so much fun and was such a, in a way it's a lovely little tip of the hat to the original series because they even go back to the original font. They make it all feel very like you'll of course remember this and unleash all these nice moments from the original pilot. Um, how did you feel about the incorporation of all of that tying it in as oh, tightly as they did? Oh, I loved it. And I also liked the way that they did the the final shot of the original Pike, the close-up of his face, and then it quickly cut to the close-up of the new Pike and the yes. camera pulled out. It was a nice transition into previously on into today. So it's like it made it feel super seamless. And to tie even further into it, like when they go back to T Talos 4 and they're on the surface of the planet, they're even using the background 60s sci-fi sound effects in the background and those little singing plants like yeah. they worked everything back in in a very clever subtle way where it just felt very organic and very natural that oh this is this is just this is just a continuation of what we saw before yeah that was really well done there were a couple of things about that that i really enjoyed which included um they didn't try to make those singing plants look like they did in the original series no it's almost like there was an ownership of we are obviously making a TV series. 
that was a TV show. This is a TV show. They had 1960s production. We have two, you know, 2023, 2020, you know, production values. So the plants that they create, there's some CGI, there's some movement, like the, the plants are, are different, but they're the same plants. So it's this nice, like, yeah, there's been an evolution here, but it's the same because we're yeah. all theater. We're all telling a story. And at the same time, within that, the fact that Burnham's response to these plants, I absolutely adored that her response was identical to Spock's, that yes. she touched it and she's just caught up in the wonder of it and she smiles. I thought, yes. what a beautiful way to tie these two things, these two characters together, that these two people who were raised as siblings from an early age have a similar response to the wonders of the galaxy. I thought, what a terrific uh, sort of emotional link between the two of them, because that is the heart of what this episode is dealing with in Spock. The Telosians effectively, as Matt pointed out, creepily are like, mm -hmm. yeah, you want us to help him? You're going to have to pay us. And what you're going to have to pay us with is an emotionally traumatic memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Very uh, kind of hand wavy as to why this is okay or this is even expected. Um, there is, if I remember correctly, the briefest of attempts to explain it away as we need to understand the entirety of Spock. And that includes this deep rooted memory, which you are tied into. So for mm -hmm. us to most effectively repair him, we need to know all of that context, including your side of it. And that's very convenient, but it sounds very close to, I got a bunch of puppies in my van. Do you want to come help me with these puppies? <laughs> like, yeah. mm, this doesn't sound like <laughs> bad like, touch, bad touch. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a bunch of giant headed people are in the back going like, yeah, I, I really want to see some traumatic memories. How about you? Yeah. That sounds, that sounds really good. Yeah. How about we do this? Bring, we can fix Spock, <laughs> but I also want to know about the bad memory. Like it's, <laughs> And ultimately, <laughs> to me, and I want to, I'm interested in it if you agree in this, uh, it's a little anticlimactic because I don't need to see that memory in order to know what happened. They've already told us. They've told us a number of different times that she did something yeah. to make sure that Spock would not follow. And an audience is smart enough to say, oh, one plus one equals two. So I walked into this episode saying like, clearly as a child, she turned to the child Spock and said, I hate you. You're stupid. I don't want you around me. Leave me alone. Leave me alone forever. They I didn't, didn't need to, to make it, see it to know did, that that's what happened. But they tried to make it the climactic moment because this last thing that they show us of the show and yeah. they didn't have to do that. They could have worked it in earlier, shown us glimpses from that moment. They didn't have to hold that back because we knew what it was. Yeah. She has said she she never actually said to anybody exactly what she did, but they you knew it was awful. So your your brain can fill in the the blanks yeah. there. So it's like she we said it to enough it. to their mother yeah. in saying like, yeah. oh, I yeah. pushed him away to protect everybody because I knew I was the target. So I hurt him. So he wouldn't follow like that's all like the therapy moment of that is really the entirety of it. That is yeah. what we knew the, the details of it, the glimpses of the danger she was in, in running through the, uh, Vulcan wilderness being chased by that creature, which in my mind is the, uh, I forget the exact name. It's basically described as like a desert dragon that it lives on Vulcan. This is to me, it felt like that was the first depiction of a creature that had only ever been used in auditory background. Whenever we visited mm -hmm. Vulcan on enterprise, um, the idea of there are these things out here the, the wilderness of Vulcan is depicted as extremely harsh and dangerous, uh, almost as bad as Australia. And so 
the depiction of that creature I thought was fantastic. And I really appreciated that moment of running and the saving from above of the Vulcan craft coming in. And, you know, that's going to be Sarek and Amanda coming in to rescue her. But, uh, Ultimately, the heart of that moment is supposed to be the emotional trauma of telling Spock to leave her alone. And the scene as depicted works. But I felt Mm -hmm. like, like you said, that scene kind of needed to be shared earlier in the moment when she talks to Amanda would have been the appropriate time to have a flashback there. Yep. And and then save this moment. You could still have the effectively emotional blackmail of if you want to help your brother, you got to give us that moment, give us that blackmail moment, but make it only in the present showing the Telosians taking it from her and show her emotional response and Spock's emotional response there on Telos four and make it about that, not make it about the drama of the action. And I say that only as, I hear myself self saying all of that and understand like that is really the nitpickiest of complaints from me because for me, this episode felt like top to bottom, really great track, great storytelling. I really liked, I think this depiction of Spock works for me in a way that I was, I remember upon first watching really being surprised at how on board I was with this depiction of Spock and really thinking like, you know, Leonard Nimoy is always going to be the man. He's always going to be the guy that like, when you think of Spock, you think of Nimoy, but if you're going to bring this character back, this depiction is really, really wonderful. He does a really great job with it. Well, the JJ Abrams movies were trying to emulate Nimoy's performance of Spock as best they could. And they did a decent job of that. This is not trying to emulate Nimoy's depiction of Spock it's a totally new depiction of Spock that does dovetail nicely with what Nimoy did yes and to me looking at this episode it looks like the writers and the filmmakers knew how to pay homage to what came before without being uh tied down by it yeah where some of the J.J. Abrams stuff felt a little you know handcuffed and they put themselves into a box they didn't need to be in where this one I I I, I'm with you. The first time I saw this episode, I, I I really enjoyed, I was surprised how much I enjoyed his depiction of Spock and how they wrote him in the series. And it felt very natural to me. It didn't feel like, didn't make me angry. Didn't make me disappointed. Yeah. Um, I really liked how they, they portrayed it. Uh, and I got it. Oh man, Sean, the, the sibling, the sibling rivalry of these two. Yeah. I was just going to get so into that. perfectly captured on that shuttle. Yeah. In that it's the fastest dialogue happens in like 30 seconds. It's just a bam, 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 back and forth with, with, um, her making fun of his beard. It's like, what, what, what is the, he's passive aggressive. A, he's passive he's aggressive. aggressive. And she he's, says, and can we have a better, can we have a better yeah. version of this conversation? She's like, yeah. they're constantly going back and forth at each other. Yeah. And they're, it's in a very, it's funny. Cause it's kind of like, um, how the mother battles with Sarek. There's logic in the argument and the back and forth, but there's this little bit of undercutting of emotion coming in from Amanda. It's the same thing here. She's going toe to toe with him in this back and forth in a logical back and forth fight. Yeah. But she's also got these nice like little emotional digs that are coming in. And because we know who Spock is, he's part human as much as he wants to deny that. You know, those emotional digs are probably prodding him just a little bit yeah she she being a sibling she knows how to tweak him just to get him a little off edge yeah and i liked i liked that conversation it was a great way to establish who these two are super fast yeah the writing in that scene stood out as one of the the best moments in the show and for me I, pulling back a little bit from just discovery it really does. You mentioned this yourself. Uh, it feels like the writers were looking for ways to tie into the bigger picture. And this mm-hmm. does feel to me like a proto original series Spock. This yeah. feels like they figured out what would Spock be at an earlier stage. This is a Spock who has left Vulcan under contentious circumstances. There is a 
in the original series, the first time we meet Sarek and his wife, Amanda refers to the number of years it has been since Sarek and Spock spoke. That period of years actually goes back to before the appearance of this Spock. And somebody pointed out Sarek and Spock, when they are on scene together in a previous episode here in Discovery, do not actually talk because Spock is out, as of, out of his mind. So mm -hmm. we are looking at a Spock who has been separated from his family. He does not have any kind of relationship with his father at this stage. He does not have a captain who is also arguably a best friend in Jim Kirk. He has a captain he looks up to and admires greatly in, in Captain Pike. And he has a sibling that he has this kind of sibling rivalry relationship with, with deep wounds and the kind of bickering back and forth that they do, which again, as Matt pointed out, models what they see their parents doing. I am logic. Mm -hmm. I have some emotion and I'm going to use it to kind of like break you out of being a jerk. And he is fully planted in. I'm going to be a jerk. And what stood out to me beautifully was this is the dynamic of him with a sibling. And who does it look like? It looks like his dynamic with McCoy. Yeah. This is his relationship with McCoy. He and Jim Kirk are best friends and there's no question about that. And Kirk knows he can depend on Spock and Spock knows he can trust Kirk. What does he have with McCoy? He has the person who is going to prod him and push him with emotionality. He has the person who's going to be like, you're being cold blooded here, Spock. You're not being human. I know you're not claiming to be human, but you can't deny who you are. And Spock reluctantly letting that emotional debate prod him for forward in different scenarios. And for me, seeing that depicted here with his sister is the perfect way of incorporating all of that. It's, it's, mm -hmm. I thought beautifully rendered in this scene. And I really, really liked it. And like I said earlier in this recording, part of what's on display here is a question of legitimacy and authenticity. And this is a Spock who is a proto original series Spock. And we who know this Star Trek universe as well as we do, know what will happen to Spock. And we know the undoing of Spock through the wrath of Khan and the search for Spock. We know all the events that will be ahead of this character, including in the first motion picture, a depiction of Spock who is on the path to wipe all emotionality from himself. He is on a pilgrimage on Vulcan to remove the last vestiges of humanity. So this is a character here who is wrestling with it in a kind of denial. He doesn't mm -hmm. want to be hurt by his background with Burnham, but he is. And it is the driving force of this episode to say that is a cornerstone of who you are. He doesn't want to admit it, but the Telosians are like, that is a cornerstone of your being. And if we are to repair you, that is a part of what we need to know. So I found all of this to be a remarkable through line of, I felt constantly reminded of the future of Spock, the Nimoy of Spock throughout this episode, which really made me feel like, yeah, this is working in a really great way. Uh, just absolutely on board with, with this depiction, the, Flip side of this episode being the Culber storyline in some ways is more immediately within this episode, emotionally resonant than the Spock. Oh aspect. yeah. The Spock, the Spock aspect feels like it's echoing through every iteration of Spock's character through the original series and on into the movies. So it has a kind of epicness to it. And it's tied into very clearly they're talking about like something happens in the future that potentially destroys and the depictions without them putting names to the planets, they are showing earth Vulcan Andoria, and, uh, Teleria being destroyed. So like, this is the cornerstones of the Federation. Something is destroying the cornerstones of the Federation. And we see admirals in holographic display in conversation with section 31. So, 
representatives of each of these planets involved in those conversations. So there are hints here, very nicely, subtly rendered without too much handholding for the audience of saying the future of the Federation is at stake. What is the cornerstone of the Federation? It's these four planets. Okay, these four planets are in danger. Here are people within the Federation actively working against their own self-interest without knowing it. Section 31 thinks they know what's happening, think they know what to do. And we see a Captain Giorgio who is figuring out that not everybody on the inside is actually as smart as they think they are. And she's figuring out ways to use that to her own advantage. So we have all of that going on. We have a kind of slightly mustache twirling captain of the Section 31 ship a little too heavy on the um i'm gonna i'm gonna lie to you and i'm gonna do what i want to pike i don't quite think that all of that was necessary his goals could be what they are but he could still come across as a little more idealistic than he does in this depiction he comes across as evil at times which doesn't make sense because he's not evil he's working for the federation he's doing what he thinks is right but it came across as a little much just trolling to me too but all of that of a is of a piece. The section 31 mm-hmm. is very clearly like tied deeply into the Spock of it all because they are, for lack of a better phrase, in search of Spock. And they think we have to get what's in him and rip it out. And Pike and Burnham are, of course, well, we can help heal Spock and then understand better what's happening. And we begin to see all of those things revealed, which, again, we knew. We knew about the hurt of uh from burnham to spock we knew that section 31 must have manufactured the story that spock murdered people to get out of the hospital those things are all connecting dots that for to a certain degree we already knew but we're seeing the final formation of okay what are we working against we're working about we're working against something from the future coming back we know a probe from the discovery went forward in time and when it came back it had been changed into a robotic nightmare that is part of what the vision included we see the vision of the destruction of the planets including something that looks very similar to those probes coming back and blowing up all of those planets epic scale and then the flip side is we have the deeply personal story of stamets and culber and Culber in particular, going through effectively as a human, what Spock goes through between motion picture number three and motion picture number four, an entirely new reconstituted body with all of the intellect and emotional history put into it. This is Culber. We are told over and over again, this is Culber and Stamets is looking forward to the opportunity of bringing him home. And the moment he is home, Culber's response is, I rationally know that this is my favorite food or that is my favorite song, but I don't feel anything. So there is this disconnect inside Culber that is causing him to withdraw and lash out at the same time, a self-protective response to everything that's going on to him. And for me, this is where the epic storyline is one of sheer enjoyment. And it brings in with the Spock character so much nostalgia that I really responded positively to. This storyline felt like a five minute mini movie of intense emotional impact that I really wish. I had more of, but maybe I only feel I wanted more because it was so perfect in its flavor. Like maybe the five minutes really was enough to make me say, oh my God, this character, it's heartbreaking watching the two men sit on that couch and to watch Stamets slowly come to the realization, my husband is dead. This man who is my husband is no longer mine. It's, it's, it's basically bro- broken down into three key scenes. It's the it's the Culber looking like he wants to murder uh, Tyler when he sees him in the hallway. 
very foreboding performance where he you it looked menacing it looked yeah. like culber's ready to murder a man and then the scene in the where the two of them are like eating and the whole conversation of i'm not connecting to anything yeah and then the final one which is the fight in the mess hall uh that kind of like culminates the entire story of culber i, I hadn't thought of it that way before about i feel like this could have been an entire episode but am i just wishing that it was yeah. a full episode or is it actually the appropriate amount appropriate yeah. amount because what they did do was so impactful every time they came back it was like a gut punch every yeah. time it came back to this i didn't when they're sometimes when they're flipping between a plot and b plot sometimes you're like ah just go back to the a plot i don't care about the b plot I did not have that feeling when it came back to the b plot i was like on the edge of my seat yeah like oh this is gonna be awful and then watching it play out so i was just as invested but the small amount of it may have actually benefited that emotional punch because of the way they were pairing it with the spock back and forth yeah of the plot lines so maybe i'm wrong in wishing that this was a full episode yeah um, i'm beginning to feel that way about my own response yeah. to it yeah it was it was so well done and like the the thing that really killed me was the scene where he's saying maybe i should shouldn't be here uh stamets reaction is so he's <laughs> basically gutted yeah and you can tell that he's just withdrawn and realizes that this is not the man who he lost. Yeah. And he just wants it to get back to normal. And so you can tell he's kind of resigned himself to, I got to let him do what he needs to do. And yeah. like, so when he's like, I'm going to leave, he's like, okay. Yeah. Like he doesn't fight. He, it doesn't turn into this. What do you mean you're going to leave? It was just a, I've, I've got to let him go. It's like, yeah. this is not going to work like this he needs to find himself and we need to figure this out so it's like you can tell what's going on in his head in that entire scene and it is so heart-wrenching it's also heart-wrenching from the perspective of culber who when stamet says something about like like i you know wish that i had known that i should spend more time with you sooner yeah. and culber's response is like yeah you were never around and it's this sudden like, oh, this is a Culber who no longer is feeling that emotional connection. So he's no longer hiding the fact that there was resentment, that he yeah. was an incredibly patient person who was putting up with a complete absentee partner. And like, yeah, you slept in your lab. You would not come home. Like, and that sucked. And I'm not the guy who put up with that. It, it are, really, are also, go ahead. I, the other thing that just, just hit me now is that these two characters have reversed roles. Yeah. Uh, because originally he was the caregiver and the person that was trying to gloss things over and Stamets was the prickly pear. And now he's the prickly pear. Yeah. And Stamets is the affectionate one that's trying to gl gloss things over and bring things back together. Yeah. It's interesting how they've evolved both characters to kind of like be the opposite of each other um, the way they did. Absolutely. And the other thing that occurred to me while we were talking is that this storyline, when he goes after uh, Shazid Latif's character in the dining hall, basically going after him as Volk, it's a moment for Shazad Latif to have a scene where for the first time his dual life mm -hmm. is actually rendered in a way that is heartbreaking for that character as well. There is a, yeah. there is a point in time in our previous discussions of this series where we're, we've basically been saying things like, yeah, they almost got it there. They almost got it there. And it happened again and again, whenever it was Tyler, it was always like, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but they don't quite get to the final, like home run. They don't quite knock it mm -hmm. out of the park, but in that fight, it's almost, I don't think it was conscious on their part. I think they were trying to have those home run, home run moments whenever they would have moments with Burnham, because they were always making it about like, what does it mean to love a man who's not the man you thought he was? Yeah. And that's not really what's important. What's more important is what does it mean to be a man who has killed, but you are not the guilty party. And that moment now comes 
right into the the brawl it also gives us some absolutely brilliant two minute little scene where pike gets to call saru out for letting the fight go on yeah i wanted to bring that up yeah that that to me like the whole when the fight's happening like in my my head i'm like why is nobody just stepping in you'd think you even see saru hold people back (laughs) yes and it was like why is saru doing this and i love that they address that directly of like i don't think you would have made this call six months ago yeah uh the changes that you've gone through have affected you yeah don't do that again don't do that again <laughs> make it clear i'm i love it I'm like yeah. i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do anything against anybody for this fight but make it clear to everybody that this never happens again and saru yes. just like yes captain like like blithely like yeah i think it was more important that they work shit out was yeah. literally what he he said like i felt like it was more important that they work out their differences right then like okay like he wasn't he wasn't wrong he wasn't wrong uh no. the fight ends with a kind of petering out with tyler saying like like i own that i killed you i'm not denying that but i also can't undo it i can't like yeah. i carry with me that reality and on the flip side is Culber saying like, I feel nothing about the life that I am now in. And yeah. both of them kind of reflecting each other in that moment was, I thought really, really well rendered. And it ties into like, it does tie back without it being very often in the A and the B plots. We've had this happen so many times in these episodes that we've discussed where in the last five minutes, they try to say like, Oh, look, here's how the two plots intersect. Because like right. that person's boil turns out to be the solution for where we can get dilithium crystals. Oh, thank goodness. Now we're able to like solve both problems. Uh, they don't do it that directly, but I think that the through line here goes back it's pretty clear. It goes back to the idea of uh, authenticity, legitimacy mm-hmm. again in the ship of theseus paradox that's that's what's on display here and it's happening to so many different characters and for uh i imagine most of our audience is going to be familiar with the ship of theseus paradox but it was basically a thought experiment that was introduced um by plutarch which was if you have a ship and it takes it's going to take years for that ship to get to its destination and on route it's breaking down. So you begin to replace planks on the ship. By the time it gets to its destination, you've replaced every plank in that ship. Is it the same ship that originally left the original port? That is the question. And it is a philosophical thought experiment that is constantly in play around us. The idea of something like the legitimacy of a government, the U.S. government has we've had this this government running since the establishment with the U.S. Constitution. But have we look at what it's made up of? Look at how it works and look what it's evolved into. Is it the same country that it always was? It's on display here with Culber, complete replacement yeah. of his physicality. His um, mentality is supposed to be the same. And yet he is saying, I don't have any emotional connection to this life. There's nothing here that makes me feel anything. So is it Culber? Is it not Culber? Is Tyler Tyler? Is Tyler Voke? Are they both? Are they neither? Is Saru the same Saru? You wouldn't have yep. made that call six months ago. Don't do it again. Okay. Is Pike Pike? Did Pike have a wound revealed or healed? in his first experience on Talos four, because he comes back in contact with Vina in this episode. I love the actress portraying her. There is something about her portrayal that is so reminiscent of the original actress. Mm -hmm. Um, this is Melissa George. I think she does a great job. She physically looks like the original actress and she has a, 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 aspect to her performance which is very reminiscent of the original vena and when the two of them come in contact for the first time pike effectively says yeah i fell in love with you and then he still left and that original series original pilot was a pike who started the episode 
he was bitter burned out he was yeah. burnt out and he was talking about i'm thinking of giving it all up and then the ship's doctor who made him a martini was like oh yeah riding horses and going on picnics that sounds really exciting like there's an element to the character who's displayed as he is a angry captain and the entirety of that episode they keep going back to that anger as the driving force as opposed to the kirk swagger the kirk walking in and being like hey if you got any problems or women i can handle both this captain in the original series pilot was a captain who was just like i will break what i have to in order to keep my people safe and here we see a pike who hasn't quite said the same things. He's brought levity to the captain's chair. He is not like Giorgio. He's not like Saru. He's been a different tone. But in this episode is the first time that you see him look at somebody and say, maybe you changed me. And there's a relationship there that was suddenly very clearly like reverberating in both directions back to the original series pilot and forward to what we know will happen with this captain if we're familiar with the original series and again like the spock reverberations it happens in a very brief couple of scenes it's not the main focus of the episode spock is but i felt like this was again a ship of theseus moment of is this pike it is pike but it is also not Pike. And we also know in the future, we will have another not Pike who will be Pike. So lots of stuff happening in this episode that I think works really, really well. And the through line of it, the thing that ties it all together for me again and again, in all these storylines is the question of authenticity. Are these people who they claim to be? And of course you have the Telosian standing there saying like, we know exactly who you are because we can look inside your mind. There's no hiding from us. And yet they are not the, they're barely on camera. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating that this is all about like, yeah, we're going to go to those people who call you out for your lies because they cannot be lied to. And yet it is about all the characters talking to each other. It's not about the Telosians driving all of this. The Telosians are just like, kind of like, yep, we're here. If you need us, you know what the fee is, but like, <laughs> tell us a painful childhood memory. <laughs> yeah. You got to show us that you got to share that juicy, deep trauma. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to say in response to any of that? Like any final wrap ups on this episode, what no, you took from it? I, I totally see where you're coming from, from the, the ship of Theseus. And I would, I would argue, Sean, you said, you, you're sure most people would know the ship of Theseus story. I would argue that's not the case. <laughs> but, but regardless, well, the reason I say that is I, because our audience, I'm, I like, I just have a feeling like Trek geeks, oh, there's, there's sci-fi geeks, who know it, like we're going to know but this. I would say yeah. it's in the minority. The number of people who know that are probably in the minority. But I, what I was taking away from, I wasn't looking at the whole Saru Pike aspect of all of it, because you're right, it all fits in neatly. I was looking at it as like lost souls. It's like people who are kind of lost and trying to find their way back to who they are. Yeah. Because that that's Spock. That is that is that's even Saru to a certain extent, but not so much. But it was it was the Culber and the Spock storyline just felt like they're lost souls trying to find out their way back home yeah. to who they they were and who they are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you just call it a lost soul, I would put Pike in there based yeah. on what we know from the original series pilot and what we see yep. in this episode, I would put Saru in there to a, to a lesser degree, but still like, who He's am I? Yep. He has no model. Yep. Nobody from his species has a model for what it means to be post that event because they've lived a lie for a thousand years. So none of them know what it means to be a fully mature Kelpian. That's right. Which like, there's another lost soul, Burnham. She's a lost soul. You've got uh, Tyler. Like, like again it's and again and again. the ship of misfit toys. It is, it is absolutely <laughs> like, nobody wants a stamp it in the box. It is just again and again, all of them are just like, Oh yeah, I'm, 
I don't know where I'm supposed to find safe haven. They're all Etsy and it, and it works beautifully like this for me. I feel like this is one of the best written episodes of discovery for me. Oh, like, hands down. as I hit too. this episode, I'm just like, wow, they really, every, every single moment worked for me. And I left the episode saying like, that was, that was pitch perfect in so many ways. Um, and to do all of that and also manage the original series scenery and introduction of all those elements that would have to hit the perfect note for a Trek audience to accept it. I think they were, they really managed a bit of magic in this episode. So, yeah, I think they thread that needle. They threaded that needle really, really well. I, this is my favorite episode of the series so far for sure. At this point, we're moving forward now past, if memory serves, we're looking down the road to the next episode, which is Project Daedalus. And I invite people to jump into the comments. As always, let us know what you think Project Daedalus is about. Wrong answers only. And a little something to look forward to. I say this in all honesty. I'm always excited when I see Jonathan Frakes as a director. Me too. And he's directing this upcoming episode. So, and there have been some points where in his episodes, he's done some things I haven't been crazy about. He's learning as he's going. And Jonathan Frakes is one of the directors in a previous episode who introduced the idea of like, what if we got the camera spinning around these people while they talk? Uh, so I'm looking, but I still like, he does know what he's doing behind the camera. And I always appreciate uh, when I see his name coming up. So, I look forward to that. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts about our conversation here, what did you think about as Matt and I just wrapped it up? Like, did you see with us like all the echoes of the same kind of, of lost soul story time storytelling, or did you think it didn't work in quite the same way? And it felt a little too disparate for you. Was there something about either the Spock or the Culber storyline that just didn't ring true? Let us know in the comments. We look forward to reading your thoughts. Before we sign off, Matt, do you have anything you want to share with our audience? What do you have coming up on the main channel? I, I've had a bunch of videos about my new home build, but there's an episode that should be out by the time this is out about a new technology that was an accidental discovery about turning humidity into electricity and basically a humidity battery where imagine having a device in your home, size of a washing machine that just makes power just from the humidity in the air. It's a really neat kind of interesting, uh, discovery that was made. That sounds fascinating. And if I had one of those machines in my basement this past summer, I could have powered the entire Eastern <laughs> seaboard. As for me, check out my website, seanfarrell.com or look for my books at your local bookseller or online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local bookstores, public library, all those places should have my books available there. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us wherever it was you found this, whether it was YouTube, Google, Spotify, Apple, wherever it was, go back there, leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to tell your friends. Those are great ways to support the channel. And if you'd like to become a more direct supporter, you can go to trekintime.show, click the become a supporter button there. It allows you to throw some coins at our heads, the bruises will heal, the podcast will get made, and then we'll all be happy and smile, except for Spock. All of that really does help support the show. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening or watching, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.